0: Asif, uh, welcome to this episode of the new Space India podcast.
1: It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Space history is a very refreshing subject, I would say. I am a very big fan of, uh, you know, historical perspective of the whole space uh, sector. You know, what got you into space history and what, you know, there's not many people who I know who are professors of history who also study space.
1: (laughs) This is true. Uh, It's it's not a terribly large field. But I think my interest was uh, probably at a very young age trying to understand. uh, Of course, I was interested in contemporary events as they were happening as a a young boy. But I I was also interested in how things came to be. So that naturally led me to uh, look at uh, the, at the time, the leading uh, space programs were uh, the American space program and the Russian program. So I sort of gravitated, you know, bought a lot of books and things like that and got very captivated by these uh, amazing characters in, in the history of space, which is really a very, very, although it's a story of technology, it's a story of uh, human uh, action. And so that was very much captivating to me. I'd always been interested in science and engineering. My, I have a degree in electrical engineering. So um, of course I was interested in the actual engineering part, but it was also interesting to see how we got here. And so that's how I sort of ended up in this position.
0: And of course, then you go on to also research a bit on the Indian space program. Uh, how did you stumble on that? Yeah,
1: this is a more of a recent thing. As as you may know, most of my early work was on the Russian Soviet space program. But more recently, I got interested. I had been spending some time in India with family. And so I, I just got interested in, uh, and we were staying in Bangalore. So, um, I, I got interested um, just generally in, in the Indian space program. I think the main thing that drew me, of course, was that it seemed to be really taking off. My interest uh, took off around the year 2000. I was really fascinated by all the, all of ISRO's achievements and it suddenly struck me, you know, how did the, all this happen you know, in India? So at that time, I, I, um, I picked up a book by, you may know, a book by a journalist named Gopal Raj, who wrote a fantastic book uh, on the early Indian space program. And that book really opened up so much uh, of this story to me. So and then, of course, the next step as a historian is to dig deeper. And so that's how I got uh, to get to the next step, to dig deeper and try to tell something uh, stories that are interesting. So,
0: Yeah, Gopal is a pretty good friend of mine, and it's very, very hard to get him to be on a podcast uh, episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, a, he's an incredibly knowledgeable person and a, and a great writer. I really owe him a lot of debt uh, because besides his book, which is fabulous and I highly recommend it, Uh, He himself, uh, I've spent some time with him uh, in India and he's just a font of knowledge and insight and uh, he's just a fascinating person. I hope he continues to write more actually.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So from your papers, uh, you know, as I went through them, there's this very unique, you know, event that happened with ISRO coming out with some of the publications from either the ISRO side itself or Mm -hmm. you know some of the ISRO early personnel writing their memoirs or things like that. That's only a very recent phenomena.
1: Yeah I I agree this is a recent phenomenon. I think there's probably some uh, a couple of reasons behind that. One is that ISRO is now has has existed long enough so it has it is now looking back on its own history so to speak. You know it was a very young organization for a long time but Now that it has a a lengthy history, it's now time to reflect backwards. So I think that was one motivation. But the second was many of the sort of what I call old timers from the 60s and 70s um, are are reaching an age where they are feeling like they want to reflect back on their own achievements. So there have been a number of uh, memoirs that have come out in the last 10 years or so, which have been added a lot to our understanding of the early days. Um, which um, are uh, widely available. And so I think that's, there's been a kind of double, both institutionally and interest, but also personal memoirs have contributed to our understanding.
0: And especially in the Indian context, uh, I'm really fascinated with the character of uh, Sarabai. It's almost Mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, one man who is uh, at the right time, at the right place, with the right connections, with the right background.
1: Yeah, (laughs) very much so. I mean, it's, yeah
0: and you know you talk to about sarabhai in your own papers uh, quite extensively you talk about some of the conversations on how yeah. the early collaborations happened between him and the others and and so on uh, but i always wondered you know what uh, really led sarabhai to think about uh, using space as a tool in uh, societal benefit so was there any specific uh, you know research done on on his ideas itself uh, yeah, his it, it
1: is an interesting question. How how was Sarabhai drawn to space at the? Because, as you know, he was a a cosmic ray physicist, but he also, after his studies in Great Britain, he came back to India uh, around the time of independence, and he founded many institutions, um, which were uh, some of them uh, were obviously science related, but not all of them. I mean, he was very in, involved in the industrial activity in Ahmedabad and so on and so forth, but. I think what I I think we see a kind of tr- obviously his interest in cosmic rays meant that he was somewhat familiar with uh, things, so to speak, cosmic and space related. But I think we really see the flowering of that interest after the Russian launch of Sputnik in nineteen fifty seven, and you see some of his um, interest also sort of uh, gravitate toward direction. I would say one thing that I would add is that his. He was a a figure, I think, who's interested in the most advanced uh, technologies and sciences just by, I think his nature was sort of, I think he was attracted to cutting edge things. So space was a natural domain for him to be interested in because of that. Um, And we see that particularly in the late 50s, early 60s, he's starting to imagine uh, what India can do in terms of a space program. But I think the, the trigger, if you will, was really Sputnik. And for many people, I don't think not just for him, it, because it opened up the possibility, oh, here we are in the new space age. What's going to happen? How can I contribute? How can our my country contribute? So Sarabhai, I think, has a kind of dual uh, vision. I think he was always interested in his own uh, place in all of this as a as a very smart institution builder. He wanted to be a part of it. But I think a second part of it is also he was uh, a nation builder in, in the sense that he was part of the project of building up India. He was very invested in that project. Both of those things coincided and overlapped in this space business, I think. And that's what I think set him off.
0: The other question that I always have in my mind is, uh, was there any other person you know who was as connected as Sarabhai, politically as a, well-trained as a scientist uh, and coming from a developing country who sold this idea of space to their uh, political leadership then. And uh, I failed to recognize anyone outside of, let's say, China in the yeah. developing world at that time.
1: I think you're, I think you're right. Uh, Sarabai was very unique because um, he... He, uh, he was the embodiment of a number of different things. If you just had one or two of these things, he might not have succeeded, but he had a whole thing, a whole set of things working in his favor. Uh, one, obviously he was a very accomplished scientist. Number two, he was an institution builder. Number three, he was well connected to the uh, elites of Indian um, governance and society. So I think, and, and number four, he was also wealthy. So I think all of these things worked in his favor. Um, and you know, I would add a few other things. He was definitely visionary in the in the sense that he was able to translate the the science to uh, a public. You know, because that's also very important for these kinds of figures. You can't just live in your little world. You have to be able to really appeal to a broader public. And if you read his writings from the '60s, they're very uh, appealing and accessible to regular people. You don't have to be a space scientist to understand that. In terms of other people in other countries, you're right. I think the, the most obvious parallel that I can see is probably Xian Zhushen, who was the Chinese, uh, some consider the founder of the Chinese space program. Uh, very sort of interesting and fascinating life, uh, very different life than uh, Sarabai. But like Sarabai, he, had, he was extremely smart and accomplished as a scientist. Um, He was also uh, a very good institution builder, a very good manager, and from what I understand, an inspirational figure. So he, uh, as you may know, he worked and was educated for a long time in the United States at the California Institute of Technology at Caltech and also at MIT. And then he was a very key figure in the early days of the U.S. rocket program at Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, one of probably one of one, or, one of the top one or two people in the rocket program in the U.S. But for a variety of political reasons, he was essentially forced back to China in the 50s and he founds the Chinese space program. And so I think uh, there is a kind of some parallels I think we would see. Uh, Xi'an's life was, a, of course, ended up, he left, he wasn't very deeply involved in the space program after the initial decade or so. And he becomes a... Um, a, a writer, and he gets involved in many other national projects, but I think uh, these kinds of figures we see um, in many other national contexts, for example, Werner von Braun, in, in the, who's the German scientist who came to the U.S., Sergei Karolyov, the Russian scientist. So, uh, there are other figures like this. Uh, they're all, I don't want to generalize, they're all the same, but they played a very key role in galvanizing and mobilizing a lot of people. Sarabha was definitely one. Um, in India,
0: yeah, and essentially, I don't see any such figure existing today who have the same kind of uh, clout, both as a scientific uh, person and as a person who can uh, have some kind of uh, influence on political leadership towards uh, science policy making in India anymore.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think so. I, I don't. Uh, I, I I don't know any, anybody myself at that level. Uh, you know there. are these kinds of things are very rare. I don't think these are very common. I, um, you know, people. Um, but perhaps there's somebody coming up in the next generation. It's hard to say. But certainly, then the post. It's not that I. I don't want to minimize the accomplishments of people who came after Sarah, but especially people like you know Satish Dawan, and who was very crucial. But I. I do. I don't see anybody who's you know sort of charismatic in in the double sense of the word, both as a scientist slash engineer and as a public figure, like somebody inspirational, that's a rare thing. You know, you have you usually have one or the other. The combination of those is not very common.
0: Yeah, for the, a lot of people who I've spoken to who work directly with Satish Devan, call him like a man of process and the Sarabhai as the visionary who put in place the vision. Uh, so that kind of complemented uh, you know, each other's uh, uh, stints as then the person who set the vision and then the person who built the processes on top to meet that vision.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think those generalizations are vaguely true. I think in the sense that when Sarabhai was in charge in the, ni- in the 1960s, really, um, that's when the vision was necessary. He also laid down this blueprint For ISRO, which was you know we're going to do a space program that is directed towards uh, developing our own people rather than some sort of fancy stunt-making space program. That was his vision. And um, in terms of managerial roles, uh, you know I've heard Sarabhai was rather you know informal, somewhat chaotic. People were sort of doing their own thing in this sort of ad hoc way. Satish Dhawan came along at a time when the ISRO needed somebody to really straighten things out. The SLV three, the first launch vehicle, was being developed in the 70s, and you need enormously complicated. Uh, it's an enormously complicated project. You need very clear management. Uh, he, you know, he sort of introduced this project-driven management at ISRO. So he, his his role is can't be minimized. Incredible, I think. And but he had the he didn't have necessarily the star power that Sarabhai had, and maybe that's that's what was necessary in the 70s. Somebody sort of get down to the business of doing the actual engineering so they were the right people at the right time i think
0: and in your papers you actually one of the things that i really liked is you talk extensively extensively about uh, tumba and yeah. the selection of tumba and you know the uh, the conversations around you know convincing people in the us and the soviet union in france yeah. and other places to to be a participant yeah and it's always fascinating to see that A person from India is talking to, you know, advanced countries who are building these missiles and satellites and telling them do something here in India where (laughs) we can collaborate. So I would love to, you know, uh, have you describe this whole thing that you write in your paper so that, uh, you know, people can get a sense of what was really the... Background to Tumba itself, because we all celebrate Tumba. Everybody knows about Tumba in India. Most of the people who know the space program, but right. hardly anyone really knows about the background conversations around it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, the the, the creation of Tumba is a is a very very fascinating process and, and very complicated. It just didn't appear out of anywhere or nowhere. It's and the the process involves many different players in uh, across the world. Uh, This is why the article, my article is called The Global Creation of Tumba because it did really involve so many different players. At the the core of it is, of course, Sarabhai and also Homi Baba, who was head of the Atomic Energy Commission, another very fascinating and brilliant scientist. So I think these guys, um, uh, I think particularly Sarabhai wanted to essentially create um, a space program in India. And I think his vision was that in order to do that, we'd really have to have the infrastructure and the expertise within India rather than you know somewhere else and how do you do that well you create some maybe a launch base or something that is uh, that has a kind of an international flavor so that people come to it um, at the time in the early 60s when he had this idea he also wanted to do some other things to like create a communications satellite station and so forth but at the time India didn't have necessarily the technological infrastructure or anything really to create this so what he did was he canvassed and mobilized a bunch of his international contacts, uh, the most critical being in the United States uh, with NASA. And um, he went to NASA, I think the first time in 1961. And he essentially, it took a while, but he engineered essentially uh, an agreement that NASA would provide some infrastructure, uh, um, including an actual rocket, uh, which they would launch from India. And the, the sort of the carrot, if you will, uh, uh was uh the the attractive part of this was he offered india as a place to study a particular uh geomagnetic phenomenon you know this sort of equatorial electrojet which only was observable near the equator of the earth and uh, in south india you know of course the equator passes through uh kerala and so uh, so he offered this as a kind of a tantalizing possibility to a number of physicists Saying, look you guys come to India you can study this you don't have to go to have ships out in the middle of the ocean we have a, we have an actual location uh, somewhere in Kerala we can do this so that got scientists involved NASA found this sort of sufficiently tantalizing but again um, he he was very I think Sarabha was very strategic he didn't want to depend on one set of partners in this case the US he went to the Soviet Union he went to Moscow also in 1961 and uh, uh, had some talks with them about what they could offer. And eventually the Soviets offered uh, a number of other types of infrastructure, like a computer and uh, helicopters and things like that. He went to France uh, uh, at the time, um, which uh, was had a pretty good rocket program and he sort of engineered uh, an, uh, another agreement uh, to have them deliver not only um, rockets, but also payloads actually an actual sodium experiment, which would be a very a simple, but elegant little experiment to study uh, uh, phenomenon in the upper atmosphere. Essentially it released some sort of, uh, some, a sodium cloud as the rocket went up to the atmosphere and you study the direction. It was sort of, the cloud is dispersed and you study the directionality of it. And so it's a very simple, but uh, elegant experiment. And a French scientist named Jacques Blamont had already used the sodium cloud um, in Algeria with French rockets. So it was already a well-tested thing. He also, uh, and I think this was the, this was another very critical part, he went to the United Nations. Uh, why did he go to the United Nations? Because I think at the time, there might have been some perception that, uh, you know, why is India collaborating with Americans or Russians? This is not, you know, India is officially non-aligned at this time. So I think the United Nations gave it a, this sort of stamp of oh this is for global uh, scientific development this is not about any one side of the cold war so he went to the UN and he and essentially you know I'm shortening a long story but he was very strategic he uh, he suggested the UN form a committee to uh, study the possibility of organizing a launch base somewhere in the in, in those days we used to call it the third world and so um, and this committee went to study where could they, where could they sort of organize this base. And, um, but, you know, they, they did a lot of studies, but the key issue was Sarabha himself was a key figure on this committee. And so he was able to shape the committee's decision and the committee eventually chose Tumba uh, as, the, or at the time, it's India, uh, so somewhere in the south of India, uh, to have the launch base. So eventually the United Nation gave its stamp. This is going to be the international site. All countries are welcome here. All countries, when they bring their infrastructure, it's going to be free of charge. And they, if they bring something, they have to leave it there. And so all of these things are the pieces of the puzzle that come together. And then eventually the, the final part of the story is the actual selection of Thumba. And this is, um, he invited a number of NASA uh, representatives including a guy named Larry Cahill, who was a NASA engineer who had worked at the NASA site in Wallops Island in Virginia, which was a very uh, uh, sort of active rocket launch site. Not many people know about it, but it's a small site. So what Larry Cahill did was he, he looked at reproducing this site in Virginia, in India, and so his expertise was, was very crucial. Uh, a number of Indians obviously contributed to it, like Prof. Uh, Bhavsar and Chitnis and uh, K. R. Ramanathan, and a number of other people I forget, but everybody sort of sat there and figured out what's the best place to study this uh, phenomena, of the Equatorial Electrojet and they landed on uh, Tumba. And so that's how essentially by 1964, uh, 65, Tarabai is already launching rockets, French rockets um, and American rockets from Tumba. But the pieces, the actual putting this puzzle together was an enormous amount of work. He traveled globally, Every month, almost he was traveling somewhere across the globe. None of this was really known because um, all this was all in the background. And I think it was a very exciting project for me to uncover these, looking through the, his papers and trying to figure out what plane, what flight he was going to. Why was he going to Moscow? Next thing he's going to uh, Washington. Next thing he's going to Paris. And so he was a he. he his his energy was incredible in especially sixty two, sixty three. And then finally, these accords are signed. And, the, and the, eventually in 68, as you probably know, there's a very big ceremony where prim, uh, the PM Indira Gandhi comes, uh, the United Nations representative comes and Tumba becomes officially an international base to study uh, outer space. Uh, but all the groundwork was laid by Sarabaya as a kind of uh, jet setting uh, organizational project in the early 60s. Uh, phenomenally uh, successful project, I think, because it 's rare it was rare in the 1960s to have Russians and Americans standing side by side uh, you know launching a rocket and these were the enemies you know, but at tumba they would both come eventually, the Russians also brought their own rockets, which was the m one hundred rocket, the meteorological rocket, and they launched hundreds and hundreds of these from tumba and so uh, so they were French rockets, American rockets. Uh, soviet rockets and of course eventually indian rockets and you one can imagine the infrastructure that is built up in tumba because of all of this activity and the expertise which is gained by indian young indian engineers who were watching all this uh, sort of soaking up all this uh, expertise and knowledge um and it's just like a i think like a school it's like a university of rockets if you will tumba and it was possible because sarabay essentially set it up like a rotating international faculty of people who were coming uh, as a very brilliant, I think project. And I think by the seventies, Indian scientists and engineers could essentially migrate from that model to a more indigenous domestic model. But that part in the sixties was crucial for that uh, evolution to happen by the time Satish Dawan takes over, there is a kind of a core competence already to, for example, build the SLV3 under Kalam. So, but the 60s, I think, was crucial because it was a kind of uh, uh, education for the Indian uh, scientific community.
0: What is uh, fascinating for me in all of this is also that all the people who Sarabhai handpicked and even sent them to the U.S. Uh, through, you know, like government-sponsored programs or had this uh, collaboration with MIT or with NASA yeah. and so on, they all were committed to the cause and, you know, kind of returned back to India and, you know, finished their careers in ISRO mostly. And there was very little like uh, churn in terms of the brain drain uh, with any of these engineers could have easily said, now I have all the tools and I have all the knowledge and, you know, I've gotten a very lucrative offer with an American company or a European company and could have possibly migrated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. I mean, you have to understand. This was also, I think, an exception because for most, uh, there was a massive number of Indian. Um, there was a lot of Indian immigration to the U.S. in the 1960s. Uh, you know, high, uh, highly skilled Indians who were mostly doctors who came in the late uh, mid to late 1960s, and they, um, and they, they immigrated and they settled down in the states, and their their kids and their grandkids are now Americans here in the U.S. But this particular group of space guys—I um, don't think they would call themselves space guys in the '60s—all went back to India. Um, it's and they, you know, they had uh, beginning with Praful Bhavsar, who had who was at the University of Minnesota, uh, but also a number of people who were at MIT and, uh, and elite institutions here, in, like MIT and Caltech, um, all went back to India to work on the, you know, Sarabhai sent them. Said, so, you know, you go there. Um, you you know, you, you do these little uh, trips, your missions, maybe do some studies, but you come back and they all came back. Uh, so I think it, it is a f- interesting sociological uh, study and, and so it could be, you know, why or what motivated these guys to come back. Uh, but they did. And I think that they formed the kind of brain core of ISRO. Um, whereas I think with other, if you want to compare it with other um, disciplines like medicine, for example, there was probably a brain drain because... Especially people, uh, there's a generation of you know people who came to the in to the U.S. in the '60s, that stayed here, and so I think it is an interesting thing. And I, I, I don't know the data so well, but I think this is something that I'd like to follow up in in the in the book that I want to write, is do a sociological study of who came, and from what part of India. You know, there's a kind of this is speculation mostly from on my part, but it's a lot of South Indians, and I think. Um, I wonder if that had something to do with their uh, both their ability and their interest to come back to the come back to India instead of staying in the U.S. Uh, I, perhaps, perhaps not. I don't know, but I think it might be worth a study at least. From which part of India most of the people, Isro, um, early Isro, not now, but early Isro, from you know, there's this joke. Perhaps you've heard that uh, Isro stands for um, idli Sambar Rasam Organization, and I think I think that's. That came from the sort of stereotype that maybe a bunch a lot of South Indians, but i don 't know if this statistically this is true or not
0: yeah that's the first time that I'm hearing that, but it's uh, really nice <laughs> to know as well <laughs> <laughs> So uh, one of the great uh, angles that you cover uh, in your writing is this uh, uh, culture and the social angle of these Indian scientists going to the u s and uh, them being around the uh, the, the cultural kind of, yeah. uh, you know, the complexities around the U.S. Uh, uh, environment with, you know, the Martin Luther King and, you know, the whole yeah. civil civil yeah. Uh, issues going on. So yeah. uh, it's really fascinating that I think uh, you're the only one that I know who has written about this particular angle and how, you know, yeah. the perception of Indian scientists in U.S. during this time.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I, again, this is something I want to pursue. Further, But uh, many Indian scientists came to the U- US uh, in the 60s at a time of great racial strife and conflict. Um, as you know, uh, you know these, um, the, the struggle for civil rights in the US was led by Martin Luther King Jr. And he, at the very moment, I think, when there was so much sort of racial strife uh, uh, here in the US, Indian engineers came initially to Virginia and uh, a, a small group came uh, sometime in sixty two or sixty three i'm forgetting the exact date but and then further on, there were many more trips but I was looking through the newspapers, the local newspapers, and um, how um, in america in, in this west, in this town in virginia and they were sort of there's a there's uh, for like, I mean, I'm, they sort of were seen as both very exotic. These who are these brown people, and because they'd never seen anything like this, you know. But also, there's a definitely some racist sort of uh, uh, behavior too. Like, uh, and this is, you know, I've heard that they were uh, they had trouble getting haircuts and things like that because uh, people in Virginia wouldn't give them haircuts because they weren't white. But they, I, I, and you know, I've also talked to uh, a couple of them who came. And they've written memoirs, of course. In general, I think they had a fairly okay experience, but I think they, were, they had somehow ended up uh, in, a, in a very sort of critically, uh, uh, con- a very a time of great conflict in the US. I think they, they faced some of that. And of course, having talked to some of the people, Indians who did immigrate in the 60s, they faced a lot of racism too Um, undoubtedly uh, in the US. This was a very different time than now. And so I think um, by and large, I think uh, most of them were happy to go back to India, at least after their training programs. Uh, But I think they did, I don't think there was any kind of seriously negative thing that happened, but just more of a general feeling that they were outsiders and never seen as completely uh, assimilated.
0: Do you think that uh, may be a very big factor in a lot of these engineers uh, going back to India?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, especially the ones who came in the, those extreme early days. You know, they had trouble, uh, uh, you know, if, if you imagine trying to find, you know, vegetarian food in Virginia, you know, it's in 1963 when everybody's eating meat and everything. So I think I've heard that they were, they had, there were some uh, problems with finding food to eat. Uh, so I think there was a lot of cultural issues. Um, I think, um, and I've, again, this is anecdotal, but I've heard some didn't feel very much welcome here in the U.S. Um, and, and others did, you know, and I, so it, it, the experience varied, but I think some of it, some of the impetus to go back, uh, undoubtedly some of it was just uh, perhaps, you know, the pull of your, your motherland, but some of it, may have been an experience that was negative in the U.S.
0: And, you know, going back to Sarabhai, uh, once he set up, uh, you know, Tumba as a platform, and then there's uh, the U.N. and Unispace uh, happening, and there's, of course, this massive statement that uh, everybody quotes saying uh, India will be second to none in, uh, you know, space applications for societal development. Is there a background to where he picked up, uh, you know, this particular positioning of uh, India pursuing space activities?
1: Yeah, I I think uh, Sarabai's vision of space was rather different than, you know, what's coming out of US and Russia, which is uh, much more spectacular and ambitious. I think Sarabai's vision probably emerged from two or three different sources. One is just a pragmatic sense that, look, we're we're behind the game in space. What, what can we do? You know, we we can't send out things to Mars and the moon, but we can do some more modest things. And I think, which leads to the second issue, which is that I think, and you know, because Sarabai was, was a smart person. He was, he was also, he knew how to essentially uh, play the system so to speak and i don't mean in a negative way he just knew because he was a skilled person in bureaucracies if you what's you know india in the 1950s and 60s is you know kind of a developing nation there's lots of uh, problems with uh, income inequality poverty agriculture so i think he wanted to reorient he says look if we want to adopt the most cutting edge of technologies and at the time there was nuclear energy, there was space, and then there was computing, and all of three of them, by the way, under Baba. You know, there was um, quite a number of, uh, quite a lot of investment made in all three areas. Space, of course, with Incospar, the nuclear stuff under the Atomic Energy Commissioner Commission, and then the computing stuff. He, Baba started the Electronics Committee, and so I think they were already thinking, what are, what are, what can we do? But Sarabha's thinking was, you know, people are not gonna buy this space stuff in India, you know? India is after all a democracy, and so there has to be some buy-in by the people. And I think this was a kind of very strategic, clever uh, reformulation of the problem, is that, you know, I, I think I've written this before, you know, um, the question was always put, well, why does India need a space program? Because there's, you know, there's such so much poverty here. And he inverted the question and said, well, india needs a space program precisely because there's so much poverty here because a space program can generate uh, innovations and benefits that will lift all these poor people up from poverty and so he he made that the core of his vision by you know remote sensing uh, weather research um, all sorts of communication issues education and so he he sort of made those the center of his space vision because it did it india did could not afford and I didn't mean that in terms of money, but it, didn't, it couldn't take the risk of investing into lunar programs and you know, space science issues because that's not the priority of India in 1965. The priority is to just become a developed nation. So, uh, so I think that's, it was, a, so what I'm trying to say is that his marriage of space with these kinds of uh, development goals is a strategic move to make space possible within India. Instead of saying space for all this spectacular stuff, let's just make space for us. And finally, I would say, and uh, he was influenced and shaped by what historians call modernization theory, which was basically a kind of theory proposed by uh, a number of American economists who said that in order for the third world to develop, they had to essentially adopt modern technology and then through some certain stages they would develop. And uh, so I think he adopted that kind of vision, that technology is the solution to all of this, uh, rather than, let's say, social programs or other kinds of things. So he sort of bought into that. So I think all of this stuff fed into his vision. And I, I, you may be familiar, in 1970, he is one of the sort of his, his legacy, really, because he died the year after he, they issued this sort of ISRO manifesto. You know, what are we going to do from 1970 to 1980? And that, that, that document is really lays out his vision, you know, like we're going to do all this remote sensing, we're going to do agricultural stuff, we're going to do educational stuff and communication stuff. And there's no, no, nothing in there about anything else. You know, it's not like, oh, we're going to you know, land a robot on the moon or something. It's, it's pretty clear, like India needs a space program to develop its own people.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, one of the interesting conversations that I had around this is actually with uh, Jacques Blameau, who was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Sarabai's early collaborator from uh, France. Uh, yes. And you know, Blameau was in India, I think, 2016, the last time, uh, you know, uh, before he had a fall, and then, you know, I guess yeah. last year he he passed away. This year, I guess. Yes. Uh, and you know, I was asking Blamo uh, about you know his visits to India, starting from. Uh, I think early 1960s uh, he was in India already right. visiting India and uh, essentially when I met him uh, he said look uh, uh, he told me like you know I've been in India for like every year for the last 50 years or something like that. <laughs> and, wow. Uh, yeah and you know the fun thing that he told me is that uh, he stayed in Bangalore at the same hotel for like 50 years.
1: Oh my god that's <laughs> crazy.
0: <laughs> so, uh, so, so essentially you know I was asking Jack you know what did you think of uh, Sarabhai you know, having met him, having been one of his very early collaborators and having seen the evolution of the Indian space program and the Indian economy and what he thought of uh, Sarabhai selling him this dream of uh, leapfrogging, using technology yes. to you know, be a developed country and using space as a tool in leapfrogging towards a developed nation. And uh, Jacques was, uh, you know, told me like, at the first instance, I thought it was complete bullshit.
1: <laughs>
0: but, you know, now that I see it, I believe, you know, what he said was perhaps uh, true.
1: Yeah. No, I think a lot of people doubted Sarabha, you know, in the 60s. Uh, you know, because they're just like, well, yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like he's going to say a lot of stuff. But it turns out that, uh, you know, what he, the kind of vision that he had was a very, Reason, sensible one, and I don't think he was trying to be, you know, utopian and all this other stuff. In fact, that this is precisely the opposite. That you know, this let's be reasonable on what we can do. I don't, and you know, he was ambitious too. And I think maybe the ambition was the one that Blamont is responding to. Like, this guy is not kidding around. You know, this guy wants to build India's first domestic rocket satellite launch vehicle. That was a very ambitious goal for a country. In 1965, um, very ambitious. You know, at the time, you know, besides the United States and Russia, zero countries had done that. So I think Zarabi is already talking about it. So I think, um, well, the French actually joined in 1965. They were the third country. So I think you, um, but I think yeah, I think there's a kind of sense that you might doubt him. You know what he's what he's up to. Uh, Blaman is a very interesting character and, you know, sad that he passed away, but because he's he's a big player. And if any, in the early history of the Indian space program, his name would be like a massive chapter because he's, he's everywhere. You know, he orchestrated this um, treaty um, agreement in 1964 uh, to deliver the Centaur sounding rockets to Tumba. But besides that, he was uh, instrumental in many, many, many other ways through the last, uh, until the 1990s, really, in terms of encouraging collaboration between ISRO and ESA, uh, European Space Agency. So I think uh, in many different ways, I think he was a very cr- crucial character and he was right there from the beginning. Um, and uh, and Blamont, uh, you know, his memoirs, which have come out in French are really fascinating because He was in this, if you think about it, international network of people, Blamont was much like Sarabai. There was another, he's another node which went globally to many different countries. Um, And so these were giants, I think Blamont, Sarabai, and these figures that uh, were global space players of the time.
0: Yeah, and uh, I imagine you know I uh, always used to either you know talk to him or email him, and he always used to respond. And even at the age of 90 years, uh, he had a full-time office in his uh, Paris headquarters of the French Space Agency.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah, I had the I had the fortune of going there to meet him. Um, I think in 2000, so a while back, 2009 or so, and we spent a number of hours there. I interviewed him about Sarabai and he gave me a lot of his papers, which was very nice, uh, uh, historical papers. Um, But yeah, he's a, I I think he's a fascinating character. I hope uh, someday somebody writes a biography of Lamont.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, he did, uh, you know, contribute to a book that we edited on uh, Indo-French collaboration. And Uh, uh, it could be one of his, uh, you know, last uh, writings that is available.
1: I see, I see. Well, great. Um, I look forward to reading that.
0: Yeah, I'll send them across to you, definitely. And one of the things that you mentioned in your article, which is very interesting, that I thought was the protest that uh, Blamo had uh, for Tumba initially, where he landed in India and he saw a bunch of fishermen and nothing at all yes. and, uh, and saying this is a useless place with useless people around.
1: <laughs> yes, he did. He, he had this very initial impression was very negative. I think he, he said something about people are lazy or something, but I think it was, I, I just thought it was funny that he, uh, but he, he sort of, he, he had, even then he was thinking, well, if only these people would get to work, they would be great. Uh, so I think he was, uh, for something that I think, I don't exactly remember what, but he, his very first impression right outside the airport, as they're putting their luggage in the car or something was very negative. Something happened and (laughs) he complained about it, but I think over the, over the years, it got better. I think so. Yeah.
0: So, but finally, you know, when I um, met him, uh, you know, the, the last time I met him, I asked him about this saying, you know, do you see the leapfrogging effect? And uh, he said, yeah, I mean, I, i see it now in hindsight you know uh, but you know looking back 50 years ago one wouldn't have imagined the india that i visited in tumba would be the india it is today
1: yeah yeah that's that's quite a that's quite a quote and amazing uh, to see that that change um, from uh, in in the space of uh, not not very long in long in long historical terms it was very quick you know it took the united states you know a century to develop uh, from an agrarian country to an industrial one, primarily, but India and you know, did it, did this sort of movement extremely fast uh, um, so I think yeah and you know i don't I think there's a lot of you know sort of a note of caution that there's it's not like uh, it was smooth sailing, but I think people there's obviously a lot of ups and downs in this history um, even in the history of science and technology in India, because uh, truly the way in which, um, you know, people see the history of rec- recent history of India, let's say post-liberalization, 90s, and after that as a kind of, oh, you know, the, the growth and domination of the IT industry, which happened, you know, rather fast. If, if, but I think, uh, and so, but prior to that, the movement seems very slow, 60s, 70s, 80s. But in fact, I think a lot of the bedrock and the groundwork was laid during that time. People tend to focus on the years uh, since in the 90s and after that. But I think the, if you look at it in historical terms, the real groundwork was really set in the 60s and 70s, The really difficult one, the groundwork, in terms of education, educating a generation, setting up good educational institutions, uh, setting up the infrastructure of industry and so forth and you know there are ups and downs and everything but i think that period is truly interesting to me because it has a it, the real difficulties india faced are much more uh, evident then, and i think more interesting
0: so yeah. absolutely one of the things that you cover again you know referring back to your work which i also found very useful is the the system and the story around how the study for the INSAT system was put into place in in MIT. And from, you know, having read your work, uh, Sarabhai was uh, some sort of a guest faculty or or a guest professor at MIT. And he could leverage, you know, his position there to convince the management to basically, you know, kind of do a study alongside Indian engineers in putting the INSAT system together.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting story too, uh, because... Um, already in the late 60s, Sarabhai commissioned a couple of studies to see what kind of a satellite India could build. Uh, not the first one, but an advanced version of a satellite. This eventually becomes INSAT. Uh, so they did some preliminary groundwork studies, but in 1970, uh, 69, 70, he basically, you know, he had a visiting position, he, had a, he was a visiting professor at MIT, so he would spend a few white weeks, sometimes a few months, every year at MIT. Um, and through his connections, they're essentially convinced a team at MIT to uh, look into this problem. But, um, I mean, this is a complicated story, but basically he managed to get quite a lot of funding uh, for this study, um, and a lot of support from, uh, of all people, the the Pentagon. And so he, he for, for example, knew Robert McNamara, who had been the secretary of the Air Force. So there's a kind of military connection. And eventually the study was done at a place called the Lincoln Labs, which is affiliated with MIT, but not technically under MIT. So, the, but it's called the MIT study. Anyway, the people at Lincoln Labs who did the study, along with a number of Indian, um, engineers, including Y.S. Rajan, and I forget, a number of other people came to MIT in 1969, and they spent about a year doing this study. And the study was uh, released, and it was the first concrete uh, study of a uh, Indian satellite. So it was a joint study by uh, MIT engineers and Indian engineers uh, overseen uh, jointly also by MIT and in So I think, And then this study was also, as I said, sponsored by, um, had some links to the U.S. military because some of the technology, uh, some of the engineers who worked on this project were actually working on classified projects for the U.S. Air Force, some satellite projects. So I think it's an interesting story about how I think Sarabai was so well-connected that he could leverage a lot of different pieces of this thing and put together, including connections to... By MIT, connections to Lincoln Labs, connections to the U.S. Air Force, et cetera, et cetera. He could put it all together. And the, when the study was issued in 1970, and I managed to get a copy of it, I went to Lincoln Labs into their archive and looked at all the correspondence between Sarabhai and McNamara and the study itself, which is a very, very thick book. Which um, It's really fascinating because it's a, it, and it's a very advanced satellite design that they come up with eventually uh, and this is the second part of the story the they they had to it was too ambitious in a way the, and so they had to pull back a little bit um and then um the inset study that they issue eventually comes to you know it's, it's, it goes back to india but there's a lot of bureaucratic infighting at the indian government between various ministries and as, which is a the history of insight is really fascinating because uh, you know, Doordarshan, the uh, All India Radio, All India TV, all of these people were very unhappy with many different things to do with INSAT. Eventually the INSAT that is launched, um, I forget the exact date because I'm terrible with dates off the top of my head, but whenever, I think 1982, the first INSAT, I may be wrong, but um, it was a very much compromised version of the 1970 MIT report. But the people I've talked to, like uh, YS Rajan and other people have said that that report was crucial to essentially producing the core competence of the team in terms of further development. Although the actual satellite was never built in its original conception, it had a huge influence in shaping further development of satellites in India. So I think that's an interesting story in itself, itself
0: indeed uh it's it's always fascinating the whole journey uh to capture that and i'm hoping to record an episode with uh why when i am in bangalore next
1: yes yes yeah he's uh, another fascinating person and uh, uh he's like an, uh the history of <laughs> Istro is encapsulated in him in many ways uh, and a, a very a kind and generous person too i think he but he he he's a font of all sorts of knowledge. Partly because I think he was involved in a lot of the. By the 1980s, he was involved in management and policy setting. So I think that he's a really uh, not only an important person in the history of Israel, but also someone who has retained the memory of what had happened. But he he was very young in 1970. But um, I think he his um, um, uh, his and many other people's. Uh, Uh, involvement in the MIT report were very crucial, I think.
0: So one of the things that is also extremely interesting is this uh, parallels between uh, the progress on the Indian space program and the uh, Pakistani space program, because essentially, from what I have read so far in all the writings, the offers of uh, initial technology and initial collaborations were pretty much the same. And in fact, uh, there were, I think, even pictures of... uh, Indian scientists working alongside mm-hmm. Pakistani scientists uh, in the U.S on the same mm-hmm. bits and pieces. but it's uh, interesting that uh, you know the, the whole Indian side of uh, uptake in terms of uh, you know, developing that further into full program bloomed into a fully functional space program. Uh, but you know this parallel is uh, kind of very unique, and not many people have actually explored this in a fully uh, fleshed-out way, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, unfortunately, uh, it hasn't been really looked at um, very much. Uh, and again, I, um, I was surprised to discover all this stuff because I wasn't really looking to study the Pakistani space program. But when I was in the archives, uh, Pakistan's name kept coming up. And I was like, well, this is interesting. And I, uh, so I have a little bit of it in my article, but something in the future, I want to sort of pursue. But yeah, the, the story, if, if I I'll just summarize it very quickly was that when NASA was collaborating with all these um, countries in the early 1960s it um, uh, one of the countries that collaborated with Pakistan, one was india and it, these things these agreements happened very simultaneously, almost simultaneously, which was very striking to me and so Pakistan in fact, um, and this is the most striking part was that um, they um, the in I think June of 1962, they launched their first uh, rockets, The uh, basically these Nike Cajun rockets, uh, similar to the one that were launched from Tumba in 1963. So uh, basically the whole sodium cloud experiment that, you know, people say, oh, this launched from Tumba, inaugurated the Indian space program. Uh, Pakistanis did it like actually a year before, the exact same thing. And it's completely like disappeared from the historical record. But they had a very very active rocket program uh, at a place uh, um, about 50 kilometers from Karachi on the coast and this was a place called Samyami and so they just which was their version of Tumba, I guess or I guess it would be reverse Tumba was the Indian version of sammyani because sammyani came first anyway they, they launched these uh, under Abdus Salam who was the physicist um, Cambridge educated physicist who would later go on to win the Nobel Prize in Physics Salam basically set up this whole project. Uh, And there was quite a lot of competition to have the UN sponsorship of the launch base. Was it going to be San Miani or was it going to be Tumba? And uh, obviously we know the end result of it was Tumba kind of, in quotes, won this competition. But for a long time, it wasn't clear it would be Tumba. And I think the key issue was Sarabai was on this very important committee and he managed to, I think, maybe shape some of the uh, final decisions of it. Uh, What happens eventually is that, and it is striking the way in which the Pakistani rocket program essentially disappears. And I have no solid answer to this. There's a very active rocket program through the 60s. Um, NASA launches many rockets from Sun So do the um, Brits. And so I think it's not clear, but I think what has happened is this is, uh, you know, a, a, a couple of things happened basically. One was that essentially after 1971, when, you know, Pakistan essentially was beaten in in this, um, the war in which Bangladesh is born, that war, Pakistan is essentially crushed by India. And I think that was a kind of wake up point for Pakistan to think about nuclear weapons. And so I think what happens is there's a reorientation of all these resources that are going to Sonmiani and it's siphoned off into a kind of atomic weapons project. The second is that Salam himself is kind of, uh, gets sidelined in the 70s. And so he, if he was the only person essentially pushing this, but for a variety of reasons, he's no, he becomes kind of uh, sidelined in, in Pakistani sort of elites. So his, his disappearance is, is, is really also crucial. I think for these reasons son, the whole rocket program essentially collapses, and Pakistan puts all its eggs into the nuclear program, whereas India i think had uh, didn't have this kind of urgency they had a very separate sort of atomic energy commission project, and I think people like they had people like dawan who were you know who continued sarabhai's vision uh, and so i think uh, for for all these reasons I think. Pakistan essentially disappears, and as as been you know, Pakistan doesn't really have much of a space program to speak of. It's it's a kind it has a very small satellite program, and maybe I think I'm not even sure if it has sounding rockets. But I think it had the promise of it, and this is the interesting part: if it had maintained its original plans in the '60s, I don't see why Pakistan couldn't have had a SLV three type project by the '80s. But it willfully abandoned it. And I think that's an interesting story in itself. Um, and, and so I think it is a very fascinating story to me why, how these things were very parallel, but one collapses and one keeps going to a, what is now a globally uh, sort of standing space program.
0: I hope you know there's uh, more to uncover uh, in the historical archives and more research to be done there uh, in the future. But, uh, you know, when you talked about accessing a lot of the historical uh, archives, either, you know, in the U.S. or India, uh, how difficult is it to get uh, access to such historical archives, uh, both in the U.S. and in India?
1: Yeah, uh, access is a very big problem for historians uh, studying the Indian space program. Uh, and I don't mean like this people stopping you, but more that The records are uh, were never kept, you know. ISRO, you know, to my knowledge, you know, never had a formal archive. So, um, of course, lots of things from ISRO are uh, have been kept in the personal collections of many engineers. And as you know, um, um, Manranjan Rao has has made it uh, very. you, you, You know, he's done a very effective job of archiving a lot of information about the history of Istro and publishing a lot. But for historians, it's not like uh, NASA. NASA has a history office, which was formed at the very beginning of its creation. And it has an archive. So everything that NASA does gets eventually transferred to the archive. And you can go there um, and it's supported by taxes. So it's, it's a public service. You can go there and dig through stuff. Things are digitized. It's very, it's very impressive. Uh, Also there's national archives in the US which um, are easily accessible. I think there's a lot of impediments to study the Indian space program because Indian archives, both the national archives in Delhi and ISRO's archives um, were never sort of formally, nobody took the initiative in the 1960s, 70s, 80s to essentially keep a paper trail of all this because for whatever reason, it never happened. So now if you want to study ISRO and the history of ISRO, one of the things that I did was I went to uh, the National Archives in the U.S., which is in, uh, there's a number of branches, but there's one in College Park, Maryland, and I started to dig the State Department's papers, and eventually I started, I found thousands of letters between Sarabia and NASA, and with this, you can reconstruct essentially what was going on between at least NASA and uh, Israel, and so, but it's only one part of the story, and one still needs, I think, a lot of. Uh, the actual documents from the Indian side. And so what we've, we've done essentially is to depend on memoirs. And there is, as you as we talked about, a rich memoir tradition in Israel, which has been very useful to talk to people who are practitioners of, in the program. Uh, but memoirs also uh, come with some, um, by definition, some problems because memoirs are just people remembering things and people often remember things wrong. So I think you have to sort of double check and triple check and do all sorts of other things before we say anything. Um, For example, I'll tell you a small detail in 19, when the first uh, rocket was launched from Tumba, uh, people always say, well, this was, uh, the French uh, had the sodium payload, the Americans had the rocket, and the Russians had this computer and and a helicopter and all this other. So I looked at it and found that actually the Russian computer and helicopter wasn't there. Uh, it actually came much later because I went to Russia to look at the Russian records and I saw the delivery of this thing was much later. So these kinds of things, how you double check with other sources and hopefully able to tell a more true story.
0: Absolutely. And uh, from the historical, again, you know, archives and the historical perspective and historians themselves, apart from a very niche set of authors, uh, maybe Amrita Shah covering Sarabhai as a personality or, you know, uh, Gopal Raj covering a little bit of the launch related uh, history and the early teams developing the rockets uh, and perhaps some of the other writers like, you know, SK Das, the former IAS officer yes. looking at, uh, you know, some of the applications part of, uh, you know, selling the, the applications a bit to the uh, people themselves. There's been right. very little, you know, people around the Indian historian, uh, you know, base Covering any of it in the space program, so do you have any uh, instances where you've seen historians of uh, Indian origin looking at yeah. uh, you know the space program
1: well, I think you pointed out some of the already existing ones I think as a, I think you know the the primary um, actor here is probably P.V. Manaranjan Rao I think he's written a lot and I think his work stands out um, as um, being very, very good. Uh, you mentioned uh, Amrita Shah's biography of Sarabai, which I think is very good. I highly recommend it. Um, uh, Gopal Raj's book is, is critical. It's a little bit old because it's about 20 years old, but I think quite uh, still holds up. Um, I, I don't know of any kind of younger scholars. I, I hope that there are people out there working, digging deeper. Um, I know that uh, uh, I would be. I would welcome anybody uh, uh, in India or elsewhere uh, looking into all this stuff uh, a bit deeper, because I think uh, I'm. My biggest fear is that stuff is being lost. You know, because um, we're we're losing uh, as the further we get from these events, we're losing our capacity to really recover them. A lot of the stuff on the on the internet that's about ISRO are. Um, the Indian space program on the early days is just um, not correct. Uh, it's very superficial, and the same events get repeated over and over. And I fear that eventually, uh, um, more nuanced perspectives will get lost. Um, but I, I'm, I, you know, I maintain hope that I think there'll be some um, young people. I think who who will uh, take to this. Um, um, I, I should mention that. Um, I'm drawing a blank. The, den- the gentleman in India, uh, sorry, in, in the UK, who's written this book about uh, some early uh, pioneer of Indian rocketry. Um, Gurbir. Gurbir, right. Gurbir is great, and I think he's uh, he's another uh, great contributor to building up this history. He's, he's a really consummate researcher, so I think anything that he writes will be very interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, again, uh, I recorded a couple of episodes with uh, Gorbea, and one specifically also on the uh, story of Stephen Smith.
1: Yes, well, what a what a amazing story! I mean, I don't think very much was known about it. So,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In in uh, and uh, for me, the the most fascinating part of that was that uh, people in the philatelic world were involved so much with the rocketry.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, that's a story there in itself. Yeah, definitely.
0: So what do you think is the problem in involving uh, more students of history in space? Is it the funding? Is it that uh, space history is not sexy enough? Or?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think funding is definitely it. I you know, and generally with um, um, with, uh, I know, probably in India, it's it's maybe not the first priority of students to study history. But I think uh, in the US, at least, uh, there's a, there are some good history of science programs here. I've, and there are people who do uh, very good work on the history of Indian science and technology. Uh, but none of them are really uh, interested in space. I don't think it's a necessarily, I think it's an issue that people are interested in other things. Uh, I know there's quite a bit of, um, work now to try and think about the history of the Indian IT industry. Uh, But I think space um, is one of those things that uh, for, you know, much of the attention on space history gets focused on the US and a little bit on Russia. And so I think people have serious researchers are very uh, small group who study non-US, non-Russia space history. I think that's part of it because So the space has been dominated by these two countries for decades. And so you can tell a pretty good story just by focusing on the two of them. Um, And so I think uh, only now, really, in the last 10 years, you're beginning to see a much more global uh, books on the Chinese space program, for example. uh, And I hope more books on the Indian space program, too. Um, There was a, there have been some, I think, uh, um, You know, I guess there's some hope that I think some, I know some young graduate students who are interested in Indian space, but they've been sort of uh, uh, maybe uh, discouraged to go there because of the lack of archives in India. So I think that's been also part of it that I think because they know that it's gonna be problematic to have to go through archives in India, or there are no archives in India, they just decide to study something else. That's also, I think, part of it.
0: Yeah, I hope that, you know, in the future, we see more and more of this uh, coming out. And there's, of course, a role for uh, ISRO in all of this in in helping uncover more material and and helping putting out more material in the public domain as well. So, unfortunately, you know, ISRO does not have a space history office, or I don't know if they have any kind of such archival process in place, which also makes it available for the public
1: yeah i i i would hope isro reconsiders or considers this as a public service because it is a public organization and uh you know uh, much like nasa uh, which has an obligation to to share with the public what it does and so i i hope isro it hasn't done it yet but i hope isro uh creates such an office um uh, not just a uh, an actual history office, and begins the very difficult idea of sort of cataloging what they have because someday soon people will regret not doing it uh, and it 's already becoming too late but i think it's it's still possible uh, to start thinking about a history department, a history office you know it doesn 't have to be that big uh, hire an archivist and maybe a couple of staff and just start this project so I think uh it's it 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 is it is an obligation of an organization that is doing such important work to to catalog it and to think about or uh, preserving some of this work because I think soon they'll be lost and um I hope Istro does it i don't know if they will, but I hope it does
0: I hope so too and uh, I will of course you know make an attempt to raise some of these ideas to the current uh, management. Uh, they have yeah. been quite open to doing some of the you know new things, and one of the great things I think we could, we have achieved through the New Space India community is this uh, opening up of the launch space and creating uh, you know uh, a viewing gallery for many more people than uh, you know what it was initially built for.
1: Oh, amazing! That's that's really that's really great. Uh, that's exactly the kind of thing that will get the public more involved, right? I mean, I think. I haven't followed the, you know, this recent failure with the moon landing. My sense is that um, you know, I don't know what's going on internally in ISRO, but it would be good for ISRO to share the findings very publicly. Because it, uh, you know, although it was, the landing didn't succeed, if ISRO shares what happened in great detail, I think it'll cultivate a kind of interest, a community behind it. Uh, sometimes you have to share the failures with the successes, and I, my sense is that these are the kinds of things uh, uh, Isra could probably uh, expand.
0: And it's a very cultural thing. And between generations, you know, things are uh, becoming very different from each other. Because if you looked at maybe the 80s and the 90s, and even the early 2000s, when there was a lot of launch failures were routine, you know, things were just taken in stride. And, you know, people just moved on thinking this is science, and we need to build stuff. And you had this period of maybe 15 years of just success, success, success.
1: Yes, (laughs) that is true. I think, uh... It was an uh, immensely successful path. And so I think maybe people were just shocked because um, maybe there's an expectation from the public that everything succeeds, but actually space is very hard. And in fact, there's a lot of failures. It's just a part of uh, how things go in space. So I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I'm actually looking forward to, I know this, uh, of course, the virus has changed a lot of the equation, but I'm excited to see what ISRO does in the next year or two um, and how it bounces back from especially the lunar program.
0: And especially if you are a space program and if you are not failing, it actually tells maybe that you're not pushing the boundaries enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, excellent point. That is also true um, because there's a complacency that builds up well, we can do, you know, the PSLV is an incredibly successful launch, one of the most successful launch vehicles in the history. But I think um, every time you go to a new launch vehicle, it's, it's, good. it's always pushing the envelope or a new spacecraft. Also with the, with the human program that's coming up, that'll be, that's definitely pushing the boundary. So we'll see how that plays out.
0: So, you know, in closing, uh, is there any like new projects around the Indian space program that you're working on that is exciting and, you know, uh, you want to share? Yeah, I mean, uh,
1: well, just that I'm working on an article uh, on the first Indian Aryabhatta satellite and that was launched in 1975 by the Russians. Um, I've discovered a lot of uh, basically a cache of documents uh, during my last trip to Moscow on this project, uh, including many letters from, including uh, all the way back to Sarabai. actually, I found letters in 1970, 71, proposing this project. And um, so I'm hopefully, We'll try to write uh, something about it, an article, and then eventually uh, my goal is to write a book about the Indian space program, maybe uh, about four or five years from now, uh, putting all of this together, uh, maybe like a comprehensive history from the very early days up to the launch of the SLV-3 in 1980, so kind of a history leading up to that first launch, so I want to, that's my goal to sort of put that together. but. Right now, I'm putting little pieces in play, including this um, Aryabhata satellite, which I think there's a lot of things I found which surprised me about the, this cooperation. Um, so, hopefully, I'll put that in print. So.
0: Yeah, I would love to do uh, an episode. You know, after you have the article published, and uh, love yeah. to you know do a, a follow up episode with that as well. So, uh, so Asif, uh, thank you very much for taking uh, a lot of the time in uh, you know doing this episode. It's been uh, quite a lot of fascinating insights, and I'm sure that people uh, would appreciate a lot of these perspectives, especially, you know, thinking about it from a historian's perspective.
1: Oh, yeah, no, it's my pleasure. It's always fun to talk about this. This is one of my favorite topics. So it's uh, no problem at all. And, you know, good luck to you on on the podcast.